Hello, my name is Elsa, and you're listening to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're talking about Swedish history, one step at a time, so you can create a tasteful flat pack or byggsats version of Swedish history for your brain. We are indeed. Uh, my name is Chris. This time we're going to see the royal couple split up, but uh, perhaps not in the way you would imagine. We're going to talk a lot about King Eric in this episode and what he got up to in the years 1423 to 1425. But for those of you who might be listening to us for the first time, we also start each episode with a Swedish phrase, translate it to English and try and work out where it came from. We do, and we've had a lot of love for the Swedish phrase of the week recently in emails and such, so let's not waste any time. The one this week is han, or hon, er en udda fågel. So that translates to English as he or she is an odd or unusual bird. Yes. Not not odd or unusual, but odd or unusual. Depends on what translation you want to use. Yeah, and it's pretty straightforward, this one, because it means just that, that someone is unusual or, or odd or stands out. Depending on the circumstances, it can be both positive and negative, but I would say that on balance, it's used more in a positive sense. Like you could say, for example, with her colourful dress sense, she was an udda fågel in an office where everyone dressed in black and grey. Yeah, that's quite a nice sentiment. Uh, it makes you imagine some sort of peacock living among crows or, or something like that, I guess. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of visualising it. But now back to Sweden in the start of the 1420s. At the end of the last episode, we looked at how King Eric had given Queen Philippa an obscene amount of land as dower lands, as properties, cities and counties for her to manage, keep the income for herself and crucially keep if Eric was to die first. She received these lands in Norway and Denmark at their wedding, but now she was getting a whole bunch of land in Sweden as well. She was already enjoying Sweden, but this meant that from about 1420, Philippa spent a lot of time in the country. She's here for five or six extended spells in this time period. At the start of her life in Scandinavia, the king and queen lived together in Kalmar, but that isn't really the base of operation anymore. Erik has been spending almost all his time and energy either in Denmark or at war with Holstein over the territory of Slesvig, something that has been going on for over a decade at this point. Yeah, it's been dragging on for a while, uh, long enough for Eric to get a nickname as sort of a beaver because he was never actually wanting to go on land. He was always <laughs> staying on his ships, uh, which we used as the episode picture in the last yeah. episode. This conflict had also been dragging on for so long that the Hansa had been brought in to mediate like they have done many times over the last century or so. But even they had got fed up with Eric's refusal to properly negotiate and they took the town of Schleswig that they'd been looking after during a ceasefire and just gave it to Holstein as a forfeit. This is what happens when you don't negotiate in good faith. That's why they take these properties and territories as a forfeit. And uh, yeah, so when Eric doesn't even really really bother to negotiate at all, he loses Schleswig town. 
We mentioned right at the end of the last episode that the Hansa are slowly being sucked into this conflict and eventually end up taking sides and stop just being mediators. This meant that eventually they'll cancel all trade with the Kalmar Union, which we saw right at the end of the last episode. So how is Erik going to react to this? Well, he blocks off the Öresund Strait, obviously in retaliation. But the lack of trade causes more financial problems for the king. To tackle this and try and raise more money to keep fighting Holstein and to offset the loss in trade, he makes new copper coins that are worth the same as the silver ones. Or at least, yeah, he says they're worth the same, but they're clearly not. And this is a bit of a cheat. And if you've heard of the examples of this in other periods of history, in Roman history and other medieval history, you'll know that this essentially never works. The Hansa, for one, protest, as this is just going to make the economic situation worse and not going to really entice them back to trade. But Eric doesn't budge. And because trade with Sweden is falling off a cliff, it means the state is receiving fewer fees and lower income from the associated taxes with trade. This leads Eric to forbid rural areas from trading independently, forcing them to direct all commercial activities to their towns, where his officials and bailiffs can control the trade flow and ensure the crown gets more of a monopoly on this crucial source of income. And we saw previously how various kings have tried to funnel trade through the towns to make sure that, yeah, more taxes and toll duties were coming in. Whilst all this is happening, though, Erik makes a series of failed attempts to retake lost territory, including a number of forts and fortresses along the border with Holstein, which he's been building up over the course of the war. At one battle, the Holstein forces pretend that the fort is really lightly defended, and so when the Danes turn up to attack, they then rush out and attack the Danes that are halfway up to the fort. The Danes lose a few hundred men, including an important nobleman. King Erik himself tries to retake a different fort, but the Duke of Holstein himself comes to relieve the fortification, and the Danes are forced to retreat. To complete the hat-trick of losses in 1422, Erik attempts to take the island of Ols, an island on the east coast of the Danish peninsula, just across the water from Flensburg. This time, the leader of his force suddenly dies, and the fleet is split up by a huge storm and has to return to base. This year of failure forces Eric to come to the table once more, somewhat reluctantly, and he meets the enemy in Flensburg for talks. Once again, they agree on a temporary ceasefire, and once again they decide that the leader of the Holy Roman Empire should be the one to decide the fate of Schleswig. It's looking like the Empire, which is still essentially led by Eric's cousin Sigismund, might once again declare Schleswig to be Danish, when at a key point in the negotiations, the chief negotiator dies. This grinds the whole process to a halt, and the peace looks on the very verge of collapse. Quick note here, uh, we previously said that Sigismund was the Holy Roman Emperor at this point. He's not actually that yet. There technically isn't an emperor at this point, and Sigismund is only king of the Romans, uh, as well as being king of Germany, Bohemia, Hungary, and Croatia. But he will eventually become the Holy Roman Emperor. The title King of the Romans is sort of the heir to the Roman Emperor title, and there isn't always a Holy Roman Emperor. They always need to do loads of political wrangling, 
thing and get people on side because before they're formally elected as the emperor. But basically, Sigismund is the top dog. He will be the emperor, and he's still very much the leading figure in the empire. He just isn't the emperor yet. Uh, basically, the Holy Roman Empire is extremely complicated, and uh, yeah, we might end up just calling him the emperor now as it might be a bit simpler. But yes, it's at this point when the death of the negotiator happens, and that meant that Eric really only had one thing left to do, and that was to go and see Sigismund personally to get him to be on his side. Yay! Road trip! Road trip indeed. And it's part business, part leisure, this road trip, because whilst Eric's off to see Emperor Sigismund and, in general, gather European support for his war with Holstein, he will also take some me time and go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, because, yeah, that's Europe too, I guess. Oh, that's nice for him. It's important to also think of yourself and your own spiritual needs when you're a medieval ruler constantly engaged in a border conflict. Definitely true. I, I mean, we jokingly mock this a bit, but Eric, like most of, if not all of his subjects, was a deeply religious man, and so this journey is likely to have meant a lot to him personally, and it's not often that people from Scandinavia go all the way down to Jerusalem. A lot of the other kingdoms are a lot closer, and so it's easier for them to get there, whereas uh, Scandinavians have got to go a pretty long way to get to, down to Jerusalem. And of course, for Eric, it would help to show all of his fellow ruler colleagues that he was also pious and engaged in religious matters. Whilst Eric is away, Philippa will rule the Kalmar Union and its constituent kingdoms on her own. This is the first time in Swedish history that we see a king making his queen regent, both in practice and on paper. We'll come back to what Philippa does as an independent ruler in the next episode, but now let's uh, just pack our podcasting bags and follow Eric on his trip across Europe, and eventually all the way down to the Middle East. Actually, the packing the bags part of the trip took quite a while. Preparations for Eric's journey began in 1420, three years before he actually took off. The king was by no means travelling alone. His entourage consisted of noblemen and other royal advisers from both Sweden and Denmark, including Paul Knutsson Bunde, a Swedish nobleman whose name will come up again in a few episodes' time, so keep him in mind. The Archbishop of Uppsala, Johannes Hakini, was also part of the group, partly because he was the king's father confessor, but also because as a bishop, he was one of the most highly educated people in the Union. He spoke several languages and had lived in Florence for a few years. It's always good to have someone with this kind of experience of life outside of Scandinavia with you on a trip like this. And that's partly because this trip was educational for the king too, like one of those grand tours that were popular for young noblemen at the time, even though Eric isn't that young at this point, but still. It's also a way for him to get to know the other rulers around Europe too, and do some PR for his own kingdoms, and that was mainly to get support for his conflict with Holstein. And on the trip you can see that the king had four major aims he wanted to accomplish. One, help his cousin Sigismund fight the Hussites, who were a group of religious rebels and followers of the reformer Jan Hus in Bohemia, who were preventing Sigismund from being crowned king there, even though he had inherited the title. Goal two, get a final and favourable ruling from Sigismund on the Slesvig matter. 
goal three was to secure the marriage between his heir to the throne, Bogislaw of Pomerania, to the Polish princess Hedwig, so that one day there would be a merging of the kingdom of the Kalmar Union with the Union of Poland and Lithuania. If this marriage happened, that new kingdom would be a super state stretching from Greenland to Ukraine. The Kalmar Union and Poland-Lithuania were already the largest and second largest kingdoms in Europe at the time, and if the two were merged together, it would outmaneuver both the Hansa and the German order, which was Eric's dream. One small problem with this plan to create a marriage alliance was that Princess Hedwig was already engaged to Prince Frederick of Brandenburg, but Eric hoped he could make Poland break off that engagement in favour of an alliance with the Kalmar Union. Oh well, that doesn't seem like an ambitious list at all. Eric is biting off quite a lot here. Let's see if he's able to chew it all as well. If he is successful with his three projects, then his fourth goal with the trip is to head off on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and soothe his soul. And so, with all of this in mind, in late summer 1423, the team of merry travellers set off. In August, they land in Stralsund, the first stop on the tour across the continent. Whilst they're there, Eric receives word from Sigismund that the crusade he wants to launch against the Hussites has been postponed. Eric's actually a bit disappointed. He'd arrived on the continent sword in hand, ready to do some fighting somewhere different than Holstein and Schleswig, but if Sigismund doesn't want to fight, well, there's nothing he can do about that. So Eric puts his sword back in his bag or scabbard and scratches Project 1 off of his list, so it's now onwards with the next three. Yes, and he decides to deal with number three, the marriage and alliance with Poland and Lithuania, first. He hangs around in Stralsund for a bit longer, and then just before Christmas 1423, he heads down to Krakow to begin negotiations with King Vladislav. It doesn't seem like he's contacted the Poles to let them know he's coming, though, because when he arrives in Krakow on the 24th of January 1424, the Polish court is quite surprised, and King Vladislav isn't even there. Now that's a bit awkward. Hello, knock knock, anyone home? <laughs> Just tumbleweed. Well, any potential awkwardness is smoothed over by Vladislav's newest wife, wife number four in his life, the 17-year-old Lithuanian princess Sophia, who warmly welcomes the Scandinavian king and looks after his travel party. Eric seems to have no qualms about just rocking up to various things, though, because when he hears that Sophia is going to be crowned queen in a few months, he invites himself to the coronation. Yeah, Eric is basically just saying, Ah, oh, you're going to be crowned queen soon. Lovely. I'll be there. Love a coronation, me. And then I can have a quick chat with your husband about my plan to marry his daughter to my cousin, you know, the little kid I've named as my heir, and that way we can form a giant super kingdom to kick the Hansa and all the other German states' butts. It'll be great. But first, 
I'll just head down to Hungary to see my friend, Emperor Sigismund, who's also my cousin, and I'm going to see if he can help me sort out a few things. I'll see you again soon, Sophia. Bye. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, on this part of the journey, they're escorted by a large number of Polish nobility. And so Eric and his men head to Budapest, where they meet Emperor-to-be Sigismund. It's the first time these two actually meet, uh, but they seem to get along instantly. They are cousins, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be friends. Uh, but it seems like these two were. Sigismund has also been invited to Sophia's coronation in Poland, but he's not sure if he's going to go for political reasons. Eric, never one to say no to a party it seems, quickly convinces his cousin and the two head back to Krakow together. The coronation does take place in the cathedral there on the 5th of March 1424 and is followed by a two week long party. Yeah, and in between all that partying, Eric does seem to find some time to sit down with King Vladislav and lay out his plan for a marriage alliance and a super Kalmar Union Poland-Lithuania state. And to sweeten the deal, he makes sure to throw in some expensive gifts for the king and his closest noblemen. In spite of these lovely gifts, Vladislav's response was essentially, mm, nah. After all, his daughter was already betrothed to the Brandenburg prince, and he had a deal with the king of Brandenburg regarding this alliance. Prince Frederick was already living with his wife-to-be at the Lithuanian court, because, uh, to no one's surprise, considering what we know of medieval rulers and marrying off their children, these two were of course just young kids at the time, so it was decided that it would be a good idea for them to live together at the same court so they could get to know each other before they were actually married. And so, yeah, if Eric comes in, they'd have to break up this couple of teenagers or younger, I'm not sure how old they are at this point. Uh, yeah, early teens, I think. But when Brandenburg hears of Eric's plan to essentially steal the Polish princess away from them and thereby rob them of an alliance with Poland and Lithuania, they are understandably frustrated and worried. So much so that they immediately contact the Pope to get him to declare a position in favour of Brandenburg. And they contact all the other rulers of various states and duchies and kingdoms in the Holy Roman Empire and get them to agree to saying that if King Vladislav goes through with this with Eric, they'll make sure Sigismund is deposed as emperor or not made emperor. Faced with this, Vladislav decides to stall the whole thing and says that he needs to discuss the matter with his cousin and his ruler over in Lithuania, Duke Vitaltus, who is still around. A messenger is sent to Lithuania and arrives back after nine days, but with no real decisive answer. Seems like Poland-Lithuania's way of dealing with this is just to go well and drag it out for ages. And for once, Eric isn't keen for dragging things out. He sees the writing on the wall, and so Project 3 on his list for this trip is also not going to happen, and eventually he just crosses it off too. There's not going to be a wedding. Disappointing, but you can't blame a medieval king for trying, I guess. And Eric isn't going to be too upset and just sit around and sulk down in Poland because he's got places to go and people to see. Indeed, so he leaves Krakow and heads back to Hungary with Sigismund. There seems to be no hard feelings with Vladislav over the whole marriage and alliance because he accompanies them for part of the way. 
By the time they get to Hungary, it's Easter time, 1424, and Eric celebrates the holiday by spending some time in solitude in an abbey. So, nice and relaxing for him. Yeah, but after this time of relaxation, he's back at Sigismund's court. And it seems like he likes it there. It's a nice international atmosphere here at a Central European court. It's quite different to Scandinavia. In fact, he's going to be staying for the next three months because it's time to deal with Project 2 on the list, get that final and favourable ruling on Schleswig. Sigismund sets to work on this task in a fairly methodical way. First, he sends two well-known and respected legal arbiters from Italy to Flensburg, and they have the order to go through all the documents and previous agreements related to the conflict. In what might seem as a not very unbiased action, they're aided in this review by Eric's Chancellor in Denmark, Jens Persson, and other high-ranking officials. Yeah, that is a bit weird. Uh, Eric's one party in the conflict, after all. He shouldn't be allowed to have his people assist the arbiters. But either way, the arbiters are given free access to all documents and to all towns and villages that have been affected by the conflict. In late spring, they return to Hungary with all of this information, ready to begin their final deliberation. Eric's counterpart, the Duke of Holstein, Henrik, also arrives in Hungary. Yeah, I mean, move over O.J. Simpson, because this is going to be the trial of the century. Well, O.J. Simpson could still be the trial of the century because it's a different century. Good point. <laughs> but yeah, we unfortunately don't have any records on the final deliberations themselves. We just know that after a lot of back and forth, on the 28th of June, the arbiters concluded that Schleswig belonged to Denmark and as such Eric was its rightful ruler. The basis of their ruling was that because there was no such thing as a hereditary county in Danish law, the Holstein Dukes couldn't have inherited Schleswig from their father, even if he had rightly held it in his lifetime. It simply wasn't possible, and as such, Schleswig belonged to Denmark. The Dukes of Holstein had no claim on the county and couldn't call themselves the rulers of Schleswig. Eric stated that this ruling on Schleswig was the happiest moment in his life. <laughs> yeah, well, that's nice. And I suppose it does help when it's your cousin who you've been staying with for a few months is the one doing the ruling, and you helped his people find the right facts to base this ruling on, but it's a good victory for Eric nonetheless. Holstein, of course, won't take this lying down, because they understandably don't agree with this decision. But we'll talk about what happens next time, when we cover what Philippa is up to whilst Herrick is away, because it will involve actions on her part too. For now, Eric just looks at his list of things and everything has either been crossed off because he can't do it or crossed off because he has done it. And so there's just one thing left and that was the optional fourth part of the trip, which was to head to the Holy Land. Yes, next stop, Jerusalem. Now, travelling in medieval times is, as we know, both cumbersome and dangerous, and travelling to the Holy Land no less so. There are bandits and pirates on the route, attacking travellers for no other reason than personal gain, but there are also the Muslim Arabs who control the Holy Land at the time and who had no qualms about attacking Christian pilgrimage parties, especially high-status ones like a king, since they saw them being there as a threat to their control of the area. 
So to help his cousin on this trip, Sigismund wrote to all the rulers of the area that they'd passed through, asking them to take care of Eric and his entourage. Sigismund and his people even escorted Eric personally the first 80 kilometers of the trip. To assist him on the journey, Eric also had a tour guide, Giovanni Franco, who had travelled in these areas a lot before. The first stop on their journey was Venice, where they arrived on the 31st of July. Venice was an important city-state in the 1400s, mainly because of its position and influence on trade. So meeting with the ruler there, called the Doge, was an important thing for Eric to do. While in the city, Eric does the usual sightseeing, including seeing the remains of the evangelist Mark in the St. Marcus Cathedral. This part of Giovanni's job is like, and on the left, you can see the cathedral. And <laughs> also, this makes for an interesting connection between me and King Eric, because I have also been sightseeing in Venice and been to the St. Marcus Cathedral. Did you have a man called Giovanni doing the guiding? I could maybe very well have had, actually. It was a very uh, impressive cathedral, that's for sure. Anyway, back to Eric. He seems to have gotten on well with Francesco Foscari, the doge at the time, so well that the doge let him borrow his ship for the rest of the journey. One fun fact about Francesco Foscari, he was the longest ruling of all the doges of Venice, and he ruled from 1423 to 1457. Oh, so he was just at the beginning of his reign when he met Eric then. That's cool. The Scandinavian pilgrimage party set sail from Venice in September 1424. We know they stopped in Dubrovnik, or Ragusa as it was called then, on the 16th, but we don't know when they actually arrived in the Holy Land. Whenever it is they get to Jerusalem, Eric seems to waste no time. He supposedly spends the first night he's there attending Mass in the Church of the Holy Grave. Along with all the classic pilgrim stops in Jerusalem, Eric also visits Bethlehem and goes for a nice swim in the River Jordan. Or we just assume it was nice. He did go for a swim. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we can assume that. He's been on the road for a long time. It's probably nice for him to have a bath in the river. We're not entirely sure when they depart the Holy Land, but it seems like they were getting a bit short of cash, because we know that on Christmas Day in 1424, Eric is back in Ragusa. Here, the Senate of the city approves a loan for 2,000 gold coins for him. This is why it's assumed he was low on cash when he was going to leave the Holy Land, because why else would he borrow any money? Whilst this might seem a bit weird that Eric has to go around borrowing money on his trip, at the time it was quite a common way for monarchs to get money on these long journeys. After all, there's no bank ATMs everywhere that you can just pop into. It's like, oh, 6,000 Scandinavian coins, please. I am King Eric, and can you uh, print them with my name on, please? Thank you. So the only real way to fund your travel was to bring as much stuff as you could with at the start and then borrow the rest and know that everyone else is going to be doing the same when they come to you. Although I guess for Eric's point, he's probably lucky because there's not going to be many foreign monarchs traveling through Sweden and uh, Denmark and Norway going anywhere else. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go there unless you're going there. True. And so, yeah, if you're not going back to the continent, there's no way to really pay back your, your fellow rulers. And so we don't actually know if Eric paid this money back or not. 
But with some new cash in his pocket, Eric continues his journey back via Cyprus and Rhodes. The tour guide, Giovanni Franco, he takes care of the Doge of Venice's ship and brings that back to him, while Eric heads straight back to Sigismund's court in Hungary, arriving there sometime in February 1425. Eric again stays quite a while with Sigismund, spending Easter there before continuing northwards via Poland. Here he steps off in the town of Kalitz to check in on his friend King Vladislav. Now, whilst Eric's been away, there's been a surprise development at the Polish court. Considering Vladislav was in his 70s, most people had ruled out him having more children with his new young wife, but whilst Eric had been away, Queen Sophia had indeed given birth to a son, and thus the old king had a male heir. The boy was, of course, called Vladislav like his dad. And this meant that Princess Hedwig, who both Eric and the King of Brandenburg were so keen on marrying to get heirs to the Polish kingdom, were now essentially out of the picture, since her new baby brother will be the one taking over the rule of Poland. So yeah, Eric's dream of a mega Kalmar Union Poland-Lithuania is definitely dead in the water now. He bids farewell to the Poles and continues north. He makes a final stop at the German order's main castle and capital at Marienburg, where he meets with the new Grand Master of the order, but the meeting is of no real consequence and doesn't result in anything. After all, the order are nowhere near as important now as they were 20 years previously. Instead, Eric continues via his ancestral lands in Pomerania. You know, he is Eric of Pomerania, and that's where his cousin is the Duke of Pomerania. So he has a nice quick family reunion there, and then to see at Strausund, uh, where he heads up to Copenhagen. And so, yeah, after a year and nine months or so, he's back home. What's been going on? I mean, what a trip. So many things have been done. Um, A few haven't been done as well, but nonetheless, he packed a lot in. He definitely did. And his trusted tour guide, Giovanni Franco, who the king had become good friends with, also arrives in Copenhagen after dropping off the Doge's ship. And as a thank you for his services, he's named the new master of Stegeboy and Scherpingerhus castles in Sweden. So that's a cool payment for being a, a tour guide. Did you ever get that? kind of payment from your your tour guiding days? I used to work as a tour guide quite a lot. I've worked as a tour guide in the south of Sweden, where I'm from, on coach trips to Germany, and I've been a tour guide in Paris. And on the Azores. And on the Azore Islands, yeah. And in none of those places I can remember anyone giving me a castle. So, fairly disappointed, but it was a fun job nonetheless. No, none of my clients, though, were people that came on the tours were, to my knowledge, medieval kings. Well, current kings also have castles, so the current king didn't come on one of your trips? No, unfortunately not. I'm not bitter. It was fun. So now Eric is back. Obviously, he wants to know what's been going on in his kingdoms while he's been away, and so do we. So... Eric probably heads to speak to his wife, Queen Philippa, who's been in charge these 21 months while the king has been gone, and we'll cover what she got up to in our next episode in two weeks' time. 
Indeed we will. But before we conclude this episode, we've received another five-star review, which we'd like to share with you. Uh, whilst it's long, I think it's possibly the best review we've ever had, um, because it's brilliant. And this is from Stephen A. Jordan on Apple Podcasts. And he says... Excellent. I started this podcast a few months ago and have finally caught up to the 70 episodes. I feel simultaneously satisfied from having learned so much, but also free since I can now listen every other week instead of every day and can enjoy other podcasts or music in between episodes. As an American that recently moved to Stockholm, I have found it fascinating to learn about the history of my new home. The hosts are great storytellers and I've particularly enjoyed the stories of Sweden's more clever leaders, especially Olga of Kiev, Bjorja Jarl and the ongoing tales of Queen Margareta. I've repeated many of their stories to my friends at parties and I assume the blank faces I receive in response are simply due to their minds being blown. So that's a brilliant review, but then there's also a lengthy PS. P.S. Since my dog Diego is no longer allowed to use the internet, I'm also including his review below. Woof woof. 4.5 stars out of 5. This podcast has been fantastic at keeping my owner entertained on our daily walks, so I get even more exercise outdoors, even though it's been very cold. However, I must deduct half a star, as there's not been enough focus on the history of pets in Sweden. The hosts are clearly biased towards their own species, and could do more to give recognition to the pet cats, bears, and especially dogs that ruled over the last couple of millennia. The recent shout-out to Princess Philippa's horses was a good start, though, so I'm optimistic for the future. Woof, 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 woof. <laughs> oh. So good. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. And especially thank you, Diego, for taking the time to write that. I want to know why Diego isn't allowed on the internet anymore. Right. Yeah, what's That's, he done? That was probably the best review so far. We're delighted to hear you're enjoying the podcast. And we hope you're both settling into life here in Stockholm. We know the feeling of having blank faces staring back at you when you tell people about events in history. And yeah, we also interpret it as simply being that their minds are so blown and not that they are in the least bit bored. And yeah, thank you, Diego, for your review. Uh, I think it's the first time we've been reviewed by a dog and it meant a lot to us. Uh, we're also glad you're enjoying the, the parks and other nature areas around Stockholm uh, with us for company and, and uh, your human as well. And here at Flatpak, we're very open to criticisms. Thank you for pointing out that we've indeed been favouring humans over other animals in our story so far. And uh, also and I have discussed your feedback, and we're thinking of ways we can rectify that going forward. We don't want to spoil anything right now, but we do now have something in the pipeline that will hopefully rectify the lack of attention we paid to dogs and the other animals in our narrative so far. So... Keep your ears open for something special quite soon and maybe keep an eye on the feed. Yeah, we hope we got a treat for you coming up soon. If you're allowed treats, some dogs aren't. Yeah, no, maybe you're allowed audible treats. Uh, that's, that's possibly true. Um, and very, very quickly before we go, we had an amazing time just a few days ago where we met with listener Michael, who is an American but living in the UK, with Rodney of Two Guys Three Crowns podcast. So it was a two podcast, three podcasters, one fan uh, meetup, which was 
amazing. It was so much fun. Uh, so thank you, Michael, for uh, giving a reason for us to meet Rodney again, who is one of the nicest people, uh, and for all your listening and uh, lovely words and support and everything and engaging on Twitter and all those kind of things. Um, see you next time. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search a Flatpak History of Sweden. Or you can email us at flatpakhistorysweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, aflatpakhistoryofsweden.com, where we have a list of the sources we use, family trees, a list of the Swedish phrases we've covered, and much, much more. And if your dogs are allowed to go on the internet, feel free to let them give us a review on whatever platform you and your dog or cat or parrot or whatever you have listen to us on. Yes, and um, I've also updated a new family tree as well because it's been a while. Um, So there's a new family tree on our social media and on the website too. Um, And until then, we'll see you next time where we talk about all things uh, Philippa. Yes, take care. Hey, Dale. Bye.